0: Hello friends, this is your host Prashant Daniel and welcome to Ratio Vero, a podcast where we examine and analyze cultural and worldview issues from a Judeo-Christian perspective, more specifically through the lens of theology and apologetics. The world changed on the morning of September 11th, 2001. Passenger airplanes were weaponized by Islamic terrorists and flown into American buildings on American soil killing thousands of lives. The image of the burning towers, the videos of people forced to jump from those burning buildings, and the screams as the towers came plummeting to the ground uh, will forever uh, be seared in our memories. And the attacks also irreversibly changed the lives of thousands more who survived or who had to live with the memory of their loved ones who did not survive I'm sure um, as it is uh, for as it was for me uh, I'm sure many of you remember exactly where you were that fateful morning when it happened I actually remember being all the way in India I was standing in my cousin's house and I was just having a chat with her parents and uh, you know their TV was on and um, and then her dad came over and he was like something's going on in the US and he Uh, Switched the channel over to CNN and and there for the first time I saw the the live footage of the first tower burning and uh, we as we were standing and watching that we saw the second plane fly in and I think even for many people in India uh, watching that uh, was immediately a recognition that this was no accident this was an attack The attacks on the World Trade Center forever changed the fabric of American life, and the silence of many unanswered questions was deafeningly loud. Questions like, who would do something like this? Why would anyone want to attack us? How could someone so far away hate us so much that they spent years planning and orchestrating this heinous attack? And thus began the American military campaign in Afghanistan, a campaign primarily aimed at hunting down our attackers and also aimed at equipping the local Afghan army to defend the country from extremist elements. Twenty years later, in April of this year, um, U.S. President Biden announced his intentions of making a complete withdrawal of American troops from Afghan soil beginning in May and concluding by September 11th to mark the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. This withdrawal was met with bipartisan disagreement, but the Biden administration decided to go through with it anyways. The withdrawal was poorly and hastily executed, leaving billions of dollars worth of American technology behind. News of the American withdrawal led to the resurgence of the Taliban, resulting in them quickly overrunning and taking over multiple provinces with little to no resistance from the Afghan army. But worst of all, the hasty withdrawal left thousands of Americans and Afghan allies stranded with no way to get to the airport because the Taliban had blocked all routes and entryways to the airport. Even as I say this, the humanitarian crisis has only worsened on the ground in Afghanistan with no clear resolution provided by the White House moving forward. In the meantime, the president made diplomatic overtures to the Taliban to treat people with equality, to treat women with respect and to not resort to violent methods, incentivizing them with a seat at the table of global economic powers. Shortly afterwards, however, a bomb exploded near the airport, killing 13 U.S. servicemen and several others. And news also began to trickle in about the resurgence of ISIS-K, a new terrorist faction emboldened by the absence of the United States military. And over the last few weeks, videos emerged of Afghan fighters parading around in American military uniforms and posing with expensive American technology. With America gone, the Taliban and ISIS-K have taken over. And once again, Afghanistan is left burning. So what happened? I think in order for us to understand the gravity of what is going on with something like this and um, eventually, you know, we're going to talk about something that is much deeper at work here. We first have to understand kind of the backdrop. There's a historical backdrop to this, as there is with most things, especially things of great ideological or worldview significance. And I think in this case, that has to do with the history of Afghanistan. Afghanistan has always been called the graveyard of empires. Between 1839 and 1919, the British Empire occupied Afghanistan on multiple occasions, fighting three wars that eventually resulted in them losing, packing up, and leaving. In total, the British spent little over six years with boots on the ground in Afghanistan. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and occupied them for a decade, eventually also packing up and leaving. This was followed by the American and NATO forces occupying Afghanistan in 2001 following the World Trade Center attacks resulting in them staying for 20 years only for them also to pack up and leave. The American occupation of Afghanistan is the longest presence by any country on its soil. It's important to note, however, that the objective of the previous occupations was starkly different from the American occupation. While the British and Soviets were interested in Afghanistan for what it had to offer in terms of natural resources or geopolitical advantages, the Americans went in to primarily avenge their loss at 9-11. As you'll remember, after 9-11, President George Bush, George W. Bush at the time gave a speech about how we were going to hunt them down so that something like this would never happen again. But the other thing the Americans also chose to do was to try to stabilize the Afghan military and lay down the groundwork for a stable and functioning local government. We spent 20 years teaching them the importance of self-governance, individual rights, democracy, free market capitalism. And most importantly, freedom. 20 years is a long time of investment. So here's the question. How did everything fall apart so spectacularly? How did a ragtag group of Taliban fighters, armed with nothing more than old jeeps and aging AK-47s, take over multiple provinces without so much as a shot being fired? We heard reports of the Afghan military just dropping their weapons and running out of fear for the Taliban. What happened to all the 20 years of training we gave them? Surely all, all the knowledge that we provided for them should have equipped the Afghans to withstand the encroaching Taliban. But here's another question. Surely the Taliban themselves wouldn't want to continue their archaic lifestyle but rather adopt the new Afghanistan that was made in the image of America. Why on earth Would they not want to live or be like us? This is a question that consumes the Western mind. Why does that part of the world even want to live like that? Why don't they want to live like us? More on that as soon as we get back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. As we pick up our podcast on this issue of world view, we ended the last segment with a question that consumed a lot of Western minds, even today. When we think about the way life is in many parts of the Middle East, the question of why would they even want to live like that? And I think there's a deep um, worldview chasm that we're going to talk about that I want to demonstrate for you that I think is what causes the confusion when we ask questions like that. The conundrum of that last question certainly is not relegated to Afghanistan. American foreign policy, for the most part, has struggled to wrap its head around the politics of the Middle East and Arab regions of the world. As we repeatedly see human rights abuses, the poor treatment of women, honor killings, religious persecution, or violent methods of compulsion, we assume wrongly that there must be something material that is lacking which in turn results in this type of behavior. We assume that there must be some sort of deficiency or insufficiency in their society that must be rectified by ours. We assume wrongly that financial scarcity or lack of education is what leads to such types of behaviors or actions. Our response here, especially on the American left, is to offer generous financial packages or educational programs in the hopes that it would result in a type of sociocultural reform that resembles Western culture. But time and again, we are proven wrong Because these measures simply don't work. They don't work because this is not about economics or financial resources. They don't work because this is not about offering the glitz and glamour of capitalism. They don't work because this is not about indoctrinating a people group with our modern progressive views on same-sex marriage or abortion or gender fluidity. The reason none of this works is simple there is a great worldview chasm that separates the West from Islamic countries. And we here are woefully out of touch with the existence of such a chasm. The United States was founded on a Judeo-Christian framework, and our founding fathers presumed that in the birthing of America. Nowhere is this more obvious than in the Declaration of Independence of July 4, 1776. Let me read from it. it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. That's a direct quote from the Declaration of Independence. This exceptional Preamble clearly and definitively states the stage for where we derive our values and principles from. Number one, that the human race owes its existence to a transcendent power that is a good and powerful God. It's derived from the fact that we were created. The equality of humankind arises from the fact that all were created equal. That from this unique predicament arises everything we possess as a God-given gift as emphasized by the word, endowed. And that from this gift and responsibility, insofar as it was maintained judicially, would arise its benefits, which are the gift of existence, which is life, the latitude to make choices as free moral agents within God's moral framework, which is liberty, and the enjoyment of rightly pleasing ourselves and Him, which is happiness. Life, liberty, liberty. And happiness, But within this text are also built-in accountability measures that were designed to thwart the excesses of a fallen human nature. The understanding that fallen people need governed, but because they are governed by other fallen people, the governed must keep checks on those who govern them for the sake of their own safety and general happiness. All the laws of our nation are derivations from this overarching meta-creed. And it is precisely that which allows us to live the kind of lives we live in the United States. This dictates our worldview. However, this is in stark contrast to the Islamic worldview. The Quran also lays claim to a monotheistic God who gave instructions to one man as to how the entire world should be. This primarily consisted of unadulterated submission to a deity that was certainly transcendent, but not personal or imminent. The chief end of the Islamic creed was one of religious and geopolitical conquest for the vast and expansive spread of its ideology by force if necessary and the unflinching goal of converting all of humankind to Islam. This of course led to a binary perspective of the world as Muslim and non-Muslim. All humans, by Islamic definition then, are not equal and not subject to the same virtues or benefits. But even within Islam, there is no level playing field. Men and women are not considered equal and nowhere is this more evident than in the judicial outworking of Sharia law. Transgressions of any type, especially against Islamic codes of belief and conduct, may result in harsh punishments, including death. Muslims find their roots in Eastern culture, which operates within an honor-shame spectrum which means that it is not merely the rule of law that needs protected, but also the honor of the male, the family, the nation, and the faith. This dictates their worldview. These two worldviews, the Islamic and Western, despite our good intentions or expectations, cannot coexist in harmony with each other. They cannot coexist because they are diametrically opposite to each other. The only way to coexist peacefully would be for one of these worldviews to abdicate its own values and principles. As it stands in the 21st century, this is a clash of worldviews that exist in tension with each other. The Western creed of live and let live only makes sense within our ideological framework, but has no place within an Islamic one. If the primary goal of Islam is the geopolitical and ideological conquest of non-Muslims by Muslims, then 9-11, according to the Islamic world, is not a terrorist attack, but merely the natural outworking of the Islamic belief system. Granted, there are millions of Muslims around the world who simply do not care about geopolitical conquest, Sharia law, or the submission of the world to Islamic creed, I know I was born and raised in a Muslim country. I personally know many Muslims who honestly don't care about these things. All they want to do is live in harmony with others around them and practice their faith peacefully without affecting anyone else. But that perspective is in conjunction with the Western creed of live and let live and certainly not compatible with the true and original Islamic creed as mandated by Allah and practiced by the Prophet Muhammad in the 7th century. Many Americans naively believed that the terrorist attacks of 9-11, or the violent reign of ISIS, are actually aberrations of Islam, which is often portrayed by mainstream media as a, quote, religion of peace. In reality, however, it is the millions of Muslims who live peacefully around the world who are the aberrations. A close examination of the doctrinal creeds of Islam, however, will reveal that it was actually the 9-11 terrorists, Al-Qaeda and ISIS who were the true adherents of Islam. The 9-11 attack was not a deviation from true Islam. It was the perfect encapsulation of it. If the Western world in general, and the United States in particular, want to effectively engage with Islamic nations, They would do well to first equip themselves with the correct ideological understanding of these countries. They will be better equipped if they didn't try to see these nations through rosy western lenses. They will have clearer rules of engagement if they didn't assume that the Islamic world at its core desires the same things we do. The fact of the matter is, they don't. The entire region of the Middle East, the birthplace of Islam, is as old as time itself, and the Islamic worldview has a nearly 1,200-year head start on the American worldview. That chasm is not going to be easily bridged by the trappings or incentives of modernity. The intangible world of ideology cannot be influenced by the material world. It can only be changed by the transforming power of another superior ideology. Which brings us, to the Christian worldview. One of the primary problems for a secular world is the misinformed notion that humanity at its core is fundamentally good. Any act of evil then is seen as an anomaly, a break from the norm, a deviation from the natural good. For the secular world then, historical events such as world wars, the holocaust, and 9-11 are seen as aberrations from true human nature. But it is precisely this misinformed worldview that leaves the secular worldview unable to wrap its head around the reality of evil. Secularism tries to build the tower of utopia, not recognizing that it is attempting to build on the quicksand of fallen human nature, an exercise doomed to failure. Worse still, it believes that the foundations is not only not broken, but in fact, the best that it can be. So when events such as 9-11 occur, they are seen as merely a small crack in the foundation that can be puttied over. This perspective could not be further from the truth. The Christian worldview teaches that utopia did indeed exist at a time, but that idyllic reality was shattered by the sin of mankind. The Bible calls this the fall, a cataclysmic event that sent ripple effects through all of creation, distorting it in the process. But the greatest damage took place in the human heart, contaminating it with evil and severing it from a good and holy God in the process. Consequently, the Bible states that all humans are fallen and there is no one righteous who is able to do good. It follows then that only God, the perfect moral creator, is able to undo the mess that humanity created and redeem the malady. And he did so by sending his son to redeem mankind by his own death on the cross. And those who put their trust in him will be saved from the judgment awaiting mankind. There will once again, in the near or distant future, be an utopia. One that exists perfectly under the reign of God himself with redeemed humans serving alongside him. That utopia is coming, but not yet here. Until then... Evil remains, and it will not be left alone. It will not be ignored and is no respecter of live and let live. It will come to our shores as it did on this very day 20 years ago. We would do well to remember that the gap between World War I and World War II was almost exactly the same gap it is between September 11th and today. An attack that happened two decades ago. Which would remind us of one thing. Evil and suffering could strike again in the form of another major event. But evil and suffering strike at us every day whether we realize it or not. We will never be free from it as long as fallen humans dwell the earth. Factions like Al-Qaeda, ISIS-K, the Taliban, Hezbollah, Hamas will always exist. Terrorist agents will come and go tyrannical empires will rise and fall. In a fallen world, that is simply par for the course. The solution, then, is not to change human behavior by enforcing strident political or economic sanctions, geopolitical incentives, or even forceful invasions or occupations. The solution is to change the human heart. But the human heart will not be easily changed by naturalistic or material externalities. It can only be changed by being transformed from within. And it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that is able to do that. Worldview matters. It has always mattered, and it will continue to matter, until God redeems all things unto Himself. In the meantime, as fallen humans striving to live with each other in a fallen world, we would do well to remember that understanding the reality of worldviews may not necessarily solve existential problems of evil, but it can certainly mitigate them to a certain extent. There are in fact many worldviews to choose from, many of which may temporarily soothe, distract, or numb us. As Americans, we must remember that on this day 20 years ago, another worldview literally flew into ours, demolishing it in the process. Worldview matters, and not all of them are equal. Only the Christian worldview offers us a realistic picture of the world and everything in it. Only the Christian worldview adequately addresses the problem of evil and suffering. But most importantly, only the Christian worldview offers us a true solution to the existential reality of living in a broken world. A day is coming, however, when it will not be broken anymore. It will, in fact, be perfect and free from sin or evil. It will be redeemed. Well, that'll do it for this week, folks. If you're interested in getting more information about this ministry, please visit reasonabletruth.org. That's reasonabletruth.org. If you found this podcast helpful, please recommend it to your friends and family and encourage them to subscribe to it so they can stay up to date on all our latest content as well. Thank you once again for joining us for this episode of Ratio Vero. And until next time, God bless and have a great week.